Welcome to episode 61 of the Walshy Naps podcast. I'm Abby Glassenberg. Today, we're talking about quilts as fine art with my guest, Luke Haynes. Hey, good morning. Hi, Luke. How are you? Doing well. Thank you. Good. A chance encounter with a box of fabric remnants sparked Luke Haynes' imagination. His first quilt, measuring 7 feet by 10 feet, led him through years of experimentation and improvements. And he further honed his style and developed a system to piece manageable parts into a larger whole, applying a modern design sense to a familiar process. Luke Haynes, welcome. Thank you. Good morning. Good morning. So let's start by talking about some recent fun news. You have a fabric line out. And Pretty exciting. Yeah, yeah, it's your first line, and it's called Dapper. So tell us a little bit about it. Well, so I'm working with Moda, the fabric company, and um, I've known the company and the owner for, for a number of years, and so they asked me to come on board and make a project. And it took a little bit of little bit of time to get behind the design of it. It was a, a big learning curve, but I think we've gotten somewhere, and I'm really excited. The line itself is half wovens and half prints, and the wovens are very traditional. So we've got houndstooth, herringbone, stripes, uh, some plaids in there, um, but their colors are a little bit more poppy, so we get a, a nice kind of contemporary uh, aesthetic while we have a more traditional weave. So you get kind of hopefully the idea is a really good crossover between people's sort of experience with textiles um, but wanting to kind of keep it really on the forefront of what's going on within the, the culture of, of quilting and, and making. Um, and did you have to learn like some software to be able to design this or did you design it on, you know, with pencil and paper and they sort of helped you to make it into the repeat images? Like how did, how did the actual, you know, nuts and bolts of it come together? Sure. I mean, they're a wonderful company. So basically it, they, there's about 45 designers that work with the company and not one of them does it the same way. I know um, certainly some of them send in oil paintings and say, turn this into a fabric line. And then others of us who are a little bit more computer savvy or, or computer, uh, you know, dependent, depending on who you ask, uh, create images that way. So vector files or things like that, then they can kind of turn it into the repeats. Basically, they, as, as far as you can go within your skill set, you get it to them and then they'll finish the rest for you and stick it on some fabric. Nice. And you had had just a, a ongoing like friendship or relationship with them just from going to shows and that sort of thing. Like I'm just wondering how the um, collaboration, you know, between you and Moda sort of first, you know, came to be. Sure. I was on the board for the Quilt Alliance for about six years uh, with the owner of Moda Fabric, Mark Dunn. So he and I have been friends for that, that duration of that time. And so we were in communication about possibly doing, you know, just in, in any number of things. And then I just mentioned maybe doing a fabric line. And he said, well, let's give it a try. Come on board. That's great. Okay. So that that's an interesting thing to think about. Like, you know, you were in a volunteer position, right, on the, the Quilt right, Alliance yeah, board yeah. and made some good connections there and, and were able to sort of help yourself launch this new, you know, venture. So, yeah, that's really great. Congratulations on, on the line. Thanks very much. It I looks, appreciate Yeah, that. it looks terrific. So um, I wanted to go back a little bit to your start in quilting. Um, 
I think for a long time you were uh, you were using sort of found fabrics, like upcycled sure. fabrics, clothing, that kind of thing. Um, your first quilt, as we mentioned in the introduction, was um, something that you know you made from a box of fabrics that your your mom had found and given right. to you. Um, so, uh, was there a point where you sort of shifted and started using some new quilting cottons, or a combination between new quilting cottons that you would buy in a store and the found fabrics? Well, the, the bigger answer is I'm, I make my exhibitions or the works kind of, I like to keep the material in conversation with the story of the exhibition. So depending on what objects I'm creating and why, the materials will change. It's not necessarily, uh, you know, my body of work shifts between used or new. It really is trying to speak to the particular object itself that I'm making. For example, I made an entire series where I reappropriated postures from famous American paintings. So I took photographs of friends of mine standing like picture, uh, like paintings that people know very well, would American Gothic. So mm-hmm. I had friends of mine stand in that posture, and then I produced a quilt of them. And the background was a traditional quilt pattern, all made out of used clothing. And then the foreground, the figures, was all brand new fabric. And for me, it was a conversation between traditional quilting method, existing fabric, sort of a foundation of craft, and then on top of which, adding this kind of brand new element of art, of uh, ride, applique. So there's kind of a, a more contemporary aesthetic going on there. And so it was, a, it was a conversation in the fabric that reinforced what the ideas were within the exhibition I was creating. So really, it depends on what the project is uh, as to what material I'll use. Right. Okay, I see. Yeah, and that adds a lot of richness because of the story of the fabric itself, and that coordinates with the story of of that you're telling in the quilt. Um, Mm -hmm. And you do a lot of that where you put a portrait of a person or of of more than one person on um, a quilted back or a pieced back backing that mm-hmm. um, is, has a more traditional, maybe log cabin kind of pattern on it. Um, and is that all raw edge applique? Is that how you do that? Primarily. Primarily. I mean, there, there's some other little bits and pieces in there, but mostly the, the figures on top are, are going to be applique over, like you say, a more traditionally pieced background. Mm-hmm. Okay, cool. Um, and you said that um, when you first began making quilts, you sort of made things up, uh, you know, sort of made up the process because, you know, it wasn't as though you had been quilting at your mother's knee when you were a baby or something like that. So you kind of made up quilting or what you thought quilting was. And then later you learned that you were at best 20% right. So what kind of things did you kind of have wrong at first about what quilting was? Oh my goodness. I mean, (laughs) uh, so there's, there's a lot of interesting um, supposed tos within quilting, you know, and I don't fully believe in supposed tos. I believe in, you know, really researching what the history of a medium is, doing that on purpose, and then if you want to shift it, do that actively, right? So, so I, I don't think there are supposed tos. There's just traditions, um, and so it's important to know traditions so that you can shift it. You know, within painting, obviously, it's important to know how to create very good figures, but then you can change those perspectives or do something more abstract. Um, and then within quilting, it's kind of uh, matching corners and um, doing the binding by hand and you know certain scales and certain materials and things like that, where I've definitely been, <laughs> I've been informed what I've been doing wrong uh, by, <laughs> by members of the community, which I find to be uh, rewarding. You know, it's, I really, I like the conversation. I mean, I like that people are, are so engaged by their medium that they go out of their way to kind of 
bring me along, you know? I mean, even if it's sort of with this quilt police hat on, you know, quote unquote, um, people telling me kind of where my binding needs to be, needs to be improved, you know, it just, it means that they're, they do. Uh, and so, you know, as I'm, as I've been growing, you know, learning a little bit about kind of, oh gosh, that method is so much faster and more efficient. And, and it comes from people being, you know, helpful and saying, Hey, here's, here's how we do it. And here's why we do it, you know, and then I'll give it a try. And most of the time it helps me learn something. And every once in a while I'll say, well, that's not quite for me. Right. And I think, um, sometimes that fear of doing it wrong and of the quilt police stops us from even trying, you know, yeah. stops us from even feeling like it's okay to start somewhere because you just know, no matter what you do, there's, it's going to be wrong according to the, <laughs> according to someone. Um, <laughs> and I think in some ways sort of starting blindly, you know, like the way that you did where you just like, right. I'm not really sure how this works. I'm just going to like sew some stuff together and make a thing I have in my head um, without really needing to consult a book or, or talk to anybody. Um, and then working your way backward to say, well, how do I make it flat? You know, like, how do I, how do I get this to go together the right, you know, a way that's easier and quicker and, and that sort of thing. And then you seek out the, you know, the, the skills that you might need. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Cause it can be scary. <laughs> Um, so, yeah. So let's talk a little bit about your, your upbringing. You were, uh, born in Durango, Colorado, but you spent a lot of time living in the, in the South. And, um, did you live in Mississippi? I, I also lived in Mississippi. So I was oh, curious. Oh, yeah, I absolutely did. I lived in Oxford, Mississippi. My wow. mother was in university there. Oh, nice. I've been to Oxford. It's beautiful. Yeah. That's a yeah, great yeah. town. Yeah. And so you, you lived in a lot of places though. You did a lot of different traveling, a lot of different states. And I wondered what your parents did that, brought you to all of those places? Uh, my parents had me pretty young, and they're both very uh, adventurous and, and sort of education-driven. And so what that means is uh, once they split up when I was very young, we, I would go back and forth between them, and they have gone to I don't know how many universities between them and, and gone and sort of pursued various careers and, and these kind of things. So I would go back and forth, and they would sort of follow their, their, their passions and experience to to other places and then I started going to um really wonderful boarding universe boarding schools and then off you know further into other other things so different boarding schools so I would go from state to state depending on where kind of these education outlets would take me so between going back and forth between my parents who were pursuing a lot of really interesting educational outlets and myself um, I ended up having a, a foothold in quite a lot of places I've lived in 14 states to date Wow, that's a lot. And um, yeah. were you by yourself, or did you have siblings who were kind of doing this with you? Um, ostensibly, I was by myself. Um, I'm, I've got a, a sister who is 11 years younger than me, but by the time uh, she joined the ranks, uh, this is a half-sister, by the time she joined the ranks, uh, I've been uh, kind of going to boarding school. So we never lived together. So okay. I was kind of a, an only child for all, for all intensive purposes and, you know, entitlement reasons. <laughs> <laughs> and I just wonder, do you feel like in some way that kind of itinerant childhood where you're moving from place to place, um, does that, you know, linger now in your sort of, I don't know, wanderlust or? Oh, absolutely. I mean, but, but uh, honestly, the, the opposite in some senses where I, I feel so driven to just plant some roots, you know, to dig my heels in and say, I'm not, I'm not going, you can't make me, you know, because I, I've got so many wonderful people that I know around the world. It's just so, so amazing. And I feel so blessed every time I travel to see people. And then I come home and it's like, 
you know, where's where are all my where where is everyone? You know, I'm used to kind of being so global that when I come home, uh, it's just a different feeling. And so my my new goal is to try to do the opposite, and that would be kind of stay put a little bit and make a local community and and these kind of things. Okay, and you're in LA now. Yeah, I'm in Los Angeles. Okay, and is your is your studio space in your home at this time? It's it's in half. It's broken in half, so it is in the same spot. Yeah, so one half of it is studio, and one half of it is living. Nice. Okay, and you feel like maybe LA could be a place to stay for a while, at least. Gosh, I think so. Uh-huh. Until everybody who can't afford New York City or San Francisco move here. <laughs> is the art scene in LA fun? I mean, is it is it a good place? It really is. It's a really interesting one uh, as far as commerce goes and as far as sort of one of the reasons for that is unlike most other major cities, the people here, A, have space to put up art. You know, there's really no more wall space left in New York City. Um, and, and also people here spend their own money in, in an interesting way. So you, can, you see a lot of avant-garde artists. You see a lot of new artists really explode in a very quick time period because um, people, the the patrons, the buyers will come and actually communicate directly with the artists, whereas the gallery scene is more prevalent in a lot of other art buying environments. Um, because LA is such a new art city, um, you find that there's there's a different paradigm here. So what that means is that you know somebody wanting to buy a piece of art will research the artist versus contacting a firm who then works with a gallery who then you know, pre-selects the artist. And so you see a little bit more of a quick uh, artist to purchase uh, communication, which, which makes art, which allows for new artists and for sort of people pushing a little bit of current boundaries to get their work up and out a little bit faster and try new things. So I think that's a really interesting community to be a part of. Yeah. And when you sell directly to the buyer, then you're not giving the cut to the gallery as well which is nice, and you're developing that one-on-one relationship, and um, you don't have to have your art sort of pre-screened and accepted by the gallery system. You can kind of sure. just do it on your own. So that's exciting, and it's exciting right. to know that there's, there are people there who have money, who are willing to spend money to put art up in, the, in their homes and um, institutions as well. So good to yeah, know. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So you went to um, North Carolina School of the Arts in Winston-Salem, mm-hmm. and what, what was that like? Was that for high school or for college? It was for high school, so it's a it's it's a really wonderful school that's a part of somehow inexplicably the North Carolina public school system, oh. and I say inexplicably because it's it's one of the best conservatories. It's it's the best conservatory for ballet in the country. It's a, it's one of the better conservatories for drama in the country. It's a, an amazing program in visual arts. It's got a college associated. So it's a high school that's got a couple years and then it's got a college. So it's got a film program. You know, the filmmakers coming out of that program do all the film cities in the world and do amazing things. I mean, it's it's a really impressive institution, but it's just part of the the North Carolina public school system. Um, and you know, which is which is really wonderful. So I was able to go there. Uh, the visual arts program for for the one that I was in is a two year program. So it's either the last two years of high school or the first year of college. Okay. Um, so you went so, there for the last years of high school. Well, I was actually only there one of the two years. I went for the the senior year of high school and then got accepted into Cooper Union, which is a school in New York City, and it's a really really prestigious school. So if they say jump, you say how high. So I got in. So I went ahead and moved to New York City for college. Okay, cool. And did you study architecture in college or did you study art? 
Yeah, I studied architecture. So I was in the architecture department at Cooper Union um, when I, yeah. So, it was, which, it's, you know, I feel like is, is, is not overly different. It's just the, the, the difference between kind of art and architecture is, is uh, materiality and sort of spatial reasoning, I think. Yeah, there's definitely a lot of spatial reasoning between quilting and architecture for sure, and yeah. a lot of mathematical <laughs> reasoning too. Um, okay, cool. And so did you finish your degree there and then decide to sort of try getting a job? or? No. So uh, I did three years in, in New York City, and then I went moved back to North Carolina, worked for an architect for three years, because you can start accruing your intern hours after three years of, of an accredited college um, towards your licensure for architecture. Um, and then you can go back to college. So I did three years of studies, three years of intern, and then went back for one year of architecture at another school in Georgia and then decided, you know what, I'm going to go do this other thing full time. So I kind of just took an about face and went and created a career in quilting. Yeah, that's amazing. So you must have really known when you made that first quilt, like there is a lot here and I've got a lot of ideas to express, you know, a lot of confidence that this is going to be something or, I mean, it just seems like a big leap of faith to be like, I'm going to, I mean, it works right here you are, but it, it was it, must, it must have been a scary moment. <laughs> well, it wasn't from my first quilt because I was creating quilts all the while I was in architecture school, okay. all the while I was working for an architect. It certainly wasn't, I didn't start my first quilt the day that I quit my job you know like (laughs) that would be that would be very precocious and impressive if I was able to do the first one and and uh, create a career out of it I still feel sort of retrospectively precocious for saying I can make a career out of out of this when at that point I knew so little about what uh, the history of quilting and the traditions and methods and materials and all of this. When I started to make a career out of it, I had never been to a quilt show. I had never read a book on quilting. I just kind of knew the basic definition of quilting is three layers with batting, you know, that's it. Mm-hmm. So, so having started a career in that, then I, then I started to pay attention to what that meant. Okay, so let's talk a little bit about quilts as art. Um, mm-hmm. Because I think that you more than maybe anyone in the modern quilting scene right now it's it's really clear like that you really feel like quilts are a form a viable form of fine art yeah. um so they're functional but they can just be as as visually striking as a painting and they can certainly be museum quality um so do you've said that you consider yourself to be a, a sculptor rather sure. than a painter and is that due to the functional nature of quilts so explain that a little bit more sure sure i mean the the reason that i create that language distinction is that i'm actively creating objects right i'm actively creating something with a spatial dimension to it and i feel like the thing that so often comes up in very early conversations with people who don't know about quilting or uh, don't kind of have an experience with quilts as an artistic aesthetic say, oh, you're making something that's like a painting. I get it now. And, and I want to say, you know, yes, that's a really good entry point, but no, you're wrong. I mean, in the sense that, yes, there's painterly qualities to some of the colors and tonalities, but I'm, I'm actively making an object and, and I'm not, I'm not, alluding to something whereas painting is an allusion to something either you know space or visual or color or something like that the the quilt is actually still maintaining an objectness Mm. and I think that's a really important distinction because it's not I'm not trying to use a different medium to um, create a painting I'm I'm not using a, a different 
paint, as it were. I'm actually creating a, a functional object. And, you know, the root of a quilt is in, you know, keeping your knee warm, making your home pretty, putting these sort of d- domestic qualities into a functional object. And I think that's a really important thing that to, to not lose sight of. So you sign your work on the front in the way that a painter does. And is that sure. part of that same idea? Well, I mean, not necessarily part of the same idea, but I mean, it's just, you know, you sign your work. It's just part of, I mean, it's, it, it, does, it does take a, I mean, if you look at the history of quilting, this, the, the signing often is kind of subtle or on the back or, you know, it's kind of just a, a marker of, of the maker that someone who, if anyone's interested into the future, might be able to find. You know, and I definitely am a, a big proponent of standing by your work. So I try to put my signature on the front and, you know, visible in some way. Mm-hmm, uh, to yeah. kind of say, you know, hey, I've, I've made this thing and I've made it actively and I've made it for you to look at. It's not, you know what I mean? I think if you start to hide your signature and, you know, put it on the back and, and this kind of a thing, you're, you're sort of saying that what's important is the, the work and less so the maker. And I think it's important to honor the maker. You know, I think that honestly the, the difference for me, if, if you were to ask for a simple definition between craft and art is purely intention. Right. If you want to make an art object, you've just made an art object. If you want to make a functional item, you've just made a craft object. Um, and, I, and I think that there's definitely big gray areas where you can craft an art object. But um, if you need to make that simple idea, the, the simple difference is intention. And so if you want to say I'm making an art object, I say put, sign it on the front. Uh-huh. That you is know. fascinating. Do you know of anyone else who signs their quilts on the fronts right now? I'm just, I haven't been to QuiltCon. I'm just wondering, like, when you were walking around or people that you admire or know of. I mean, are there, is this sort of starting something or do you think you're the only one? I know there are some people who sign their work within the quilting. So they'll actually quilt, you know, oh. the stitching that goes through the three layers. There'll be kind of their signature implicit in those mm-hmm. line work. And so I've seen that before. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, So, you know, I think you you participate kind of in both worlds. And I like your definition of art versus craft being Mm -hmm. about intention. But you really do participate in the fine art world. And you participate in sort of the quilt and craft of quilting world. Um, And so you've got this fabric line with Moda that we talked about. And you teach and you show at QuiltCon. Um, And I think... You've said like the art world and the quilt world see things differently. And I wondered if you wanted to flesh out like what are the differences that you notice in the way that those two worlds function? Well, the biggest difference and the, the one that I always like to illustrate when I'm explaining the difference is uh, quilters, crafters, makers of, of kind of uh, objects that take a lot of finish work time, shall we say. I mean, this goes into kind of furniture makers, etc. But they start with their face pressed up against it as close as they can get. And they look at your corners. They look at your stitching. They look at your fabric choices, their tonalities. You know, they, they, they get up close. They stick their face on it. And they say, okay, do I trust them at this level? And if they say yes, they'll move back a little bit. And they'll continue that direction. Whereas from the art world, you start from across the room. And you say, is it uh, visually evocative enough that I'm going to go pay attention to how it's made? Is it cerebrally important enough that I'm willing to discuss the object that the artist has created? You know, and so the, the, the difference between sort of the art world and the quilt world is where they start to digest an object or a painting or a whatever. You know, the artist, museums, curators, 
collectors start from far away and then work their way towards the object as they decide they trust you and quilters the opposite. They put their face on it and say, has he, has he done his homework and has he made the object with intention? Then I can step back and see if I appreciate the overall aesthetic of it. Mm, I wonder whether the modern quilt scene is sort of helping to disrupt that a little bit. I mean, I feel like modern quilts um, and your quilts for sure are incredibly visually evocative from across the room often, you know, so you, you walk into the room and I'm imagining like a really big gallery space and you would see the quilt and be like, wow, you know, from really far away. And then of course also want to get up close and say, okay, is it Raj Applique? Like how did this work? You know? So, um, yeah, so it's sort of, it it does work on, on both ways with a, with a modern quilt maybe. Absolutely. Absolutely. But I mean, I just, in terms of, if you, if you want to make uh, generalizations about the difference in the way, mm-hmm. in the difference in, in approach, I would say kind of craftspeople, uh, people with this history of, of making fine objects really want to know that you've put in your time before they're going to trust what you've done. You know, I mean, there's, there's certainly a lot going on in the, the modern, you know, quote unquote modern quilt world about, uh, big, bold aesthetic and big, bold, uh, simplified movements and, and kind of areas within the objects. And that is really interesting from far away. But you'll find that the winners of shows, you'll find that the people who get picked up to teach, you find that the people who get the highest reverence from these exhibitions are the people who have learned the trade. They're the people who, if you get up close, you can see mastery in the stitches. You can see the quilting on top has been done actively to enhance the object that there's still a big focus on the making of uh, as part as implicit in, in the, the object and why it's important. I mean, you know, visually is, is really great and that's coming out a lot more. But, I mean, I think if you look, the subtext is still where a community of makers do it on purpose. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's an important distinction. And I think um, kind of another way the worlds might sort of clash when I think about, um, it, well, it has to do with kind of help and helpers. Like I think about Andy Warhol and the factory, you know, where he had people who helped him to produce the the pieces that he's so well known for. And I know you have people who help you uh, sure. make the quilts that you show because I often see the hashtag on Instagram, quilting for Luke. Um, yeah. so, and I think that's probably common in the fine art world, you know, to, for people to employ studio apprentices and studio helpers that kind of, you know, help to make really big pieces um, uh, you know, quick enough that they can actually be shown, um, and won't take the artist, you know, their whole life to complete. But, um, I think it's maybe less common in, in the craft world. So I just wanted to hear you talk a little bit about your arrangement with your helpers. Oh, sure. I mean, this is a really, ooh, it's, it's a can of worms conversation, depending on who you talk with. Um, you know, there are certainly people who, feel that it diminishes the quality of my work that someone else has helped with parts of it, you know, that I can, uh, that I can kind of the, the piece work or the busy work, you know, to people who I've worked with and have trained or, you know, trust their skill sets to follow the aesthetic that I'm asking of them, you know, because the thing about hiring someone to help you is that you, it's the difference between hiring someone to help you versus doing collaboration is hiring someone to help you. You're asking them to do the work as you would do it. Or as you've hired them to do, you know, um, and so ostensibly they're just they, they're giving you more hours in a day. They're just helping, you know. I, me and my team are able to make far more quilts in a year than I would be by myself. 
Right, exactly. So how many people do you have kind of going at one time? They're kind of doing like the back, I'm imagining kind of the, the, the large backdrop that then the, the portrait yeah. is sort of yeah. put on top. Yeah, exactly. So they help me with a lot of the piecework and this kind of a thing, um, which I think is, you know, yeah, it's super, super helpful. The other part of it that I think um, that people don't sort of, you know, people, I've, I've had some negative comments about people helping me make my work, right? I mean, and, I, and I, respect, I respect that from the standpoint of somebody who has painstakingly created an object, especially if you do it by hand, you know, from start to finish. It's got a whole, a different gravitas in some ways. Uh, but I mean, you know, my, my conversation is always, you know, did you pick the cotton and spin the thread and right. hand dye it yourself? And if, you, if the answer to that is no, then you've had help. Right. Uh, and, you definitely have. And, um, and, like, and, I, and I feel like if people are diminutive of my work because I've had help with the piecing part of it, you know, it's, it's, if I've trained someone to do it like I would do it, I feel like it just gives me more hours in the day to create interesting objects. And you can dislike what I make. That's fine. But I feel like unless you've hand spun every part of it and woven the fabric, at some point there's another hand at a different part of the process. Right. Okay. And so do you credit them like on the finished piece at all? Or, I mean, how do you kind of compensate them for what they've done? Well, I pay them for it for oh. sure. <laughs> That's good. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, it depends. I mean, I'm certainly uh, happy to share the fact that I do work with people. You know, I'm not kind of hiding them behind it. But on some level, uh, you know, like it, when I'll write a book, you know, they'll be in the thank you section and that. But um, I'm hiring them to do work that I've designed, created, picked the fabric, designed the method, and have got them to do the work that uh, that I've set aside for them to do specifically. So it's it's not so much asking for their input in terms of aesthetic and and you know I do a lot of collaborations as well, and those are obviously very well credited. But if I'm hiring someone to do my work, um, you know I'm very thankful, but I, I don't always put them, you know, on every placard. Right. Okay. Um, and I wanted to talk a little bit about the process that you use, because I think it must be really interesting. I'm imagining that things sort of for the portrait quilts in particular, um, uh, that they start with a photo, I'm guessing. Yeah. And then in some way, the photo is kind of, um, I don't know, broken apart into pieces, almost like mm -hmm. a paint by number, right? Sure. And yeah. then, um, and then, so, so just tell us, I'm not, I'm not going to describe it because I don't actually know how it works. So tell us how, how do you go from sort of, if you're doing a commission, for example, of a portrait, how do you go from that photo that the client sends to you to a pattern that you can cut apart and, and make? Sure, sure. Well, so they'll send me the photo and, um, often what I'll do is, create a mock-up on the computer so that we can, me and the client can talk about color palettes and scale and, you know, dimensionality and, and, um, you know, the, the, the kind of conversation between figure and ground so that, you know, so that I can kind of have an idea of, of where it'll go. Obviously it's a very different thing once it's rendered in fabric and, you know, I add a lot of touches to it in the, in the process of going from photograph to constructed object. But so I'll work in the, I'll work in Photoshop, to create kind of a, a basic mock-up for me to work from. Okay. So you're taking that photo, you're using Photoshop as a tool, um, and then do you print it out like on a giant printer? Is that the next step? 
Uh, I wish I had a giant. I mean, I, I use <laughs> my printer, so I mean, it's just eight and a half by eleven. So I'll yeah. make myself a template sometimes uh, to really kind of make sure some of those areas are really definite. Uh huh. Okay, and then you use that template to cut the fabric out. Sure. Okay. Oh, that's interesting. Okay. Neat. Yeah, I've also used a laser cutter before. Um, you know, and then there's other times you just sort of freehand it. So there's a kind of combination of, of, uh, things, you know, and everyone does it. I mean, you know, when I, when I try to show other people how to do it, you know, I really shy away from just showing them my method, um, only because I want people to do it their own way. You know, there's, there's a lot to be said about hand drawing it. There's a lot to be said about, um, you know, the, the skill sets it takes to create, they created in the computer. There's skill sets within, you know, creating the files to use a laser cutter, you know. And so, like, I really, uh, everyone does it a little bit differently. And, you know, we all will end up doing some portion of all parts of it, I mm-hmm. think, to create the best finished project. Mm-hmm. Okay. And you travel and teach. Is that the skill that you teach or do you teach a set of classes on a different kind of skill? I don't ever teach that. No. You never teach uh, that. That never is your... Teach that. That is your uh, sort of proprietary well, technique. Well, one, or... it's proprietary technique. But two, uh, I don't want to just come in and say, let me show you how I do References to come in and say, let me show you why I do it. You know, because mm-hmm. I would prefer people to come out of a, a, a class with me fired up to push themselves in whatever the things that they're already doing. You know, I, mean, I, don't, I don't want someone to come in, take a class of mine and turn 180 and start doing figural work if they'd never done figures before. I want them to do, a, I want them to, to kind of follow the arc of what they're interested in. Um, you know, and sometimes it is figures and sometimes it's not. Sometimes it's pushing fabric type and sometimes it's, you know, experimental piecing or whatever. Uh, plus in terms of creating images and this there's a lot of color theory and stuff like that that would go into teaching it in terms of a class and very rarely do i have you know weeks to months to work with a class to really kind of hone them in the skills that i would want for them to put into figural work um plus you know i really think that one of the things i get to bring to teaching is hey think about it a little differently like just that you know give yourself permission to try something new and think about it a little differently and that's really the the things that I want people to take from my class. And so very often we'll do um, simple exercises that I'll guide the class on that are a little bit out of everyone's comfort zone, trying kind of, you know, abstract piecing. We'll do some deconstructing of clothing, turning that into the material, uh, changing the way that we use an archetypal quilt block, log cabin, for example, and then just shifting some of the elements of it to make a, a vastly different project. And so in doing that, people say, oh, I had never thought about um, that before, and what I'm hoping they take away from it is a consciousness within their studio practice, sort of not saying, I've designed the quilt, now I will just make this quilt. They will say, okay, I've designed a quilt, and now I've started to work on it, but I'm very actively working at each stage, and they can say, oh, I don't like this, or here's what I do like, I'm going to do that more or different into the future, as right. opposed to just this rote, um, quilts are this one thing, I just need to make them. Yeah, and make and, not, and make 150 of them that are all exactly the same. Right, exactly. And that's, I mean, and that's a wonderful thing. And there's a lot, you know, and if you make quilts for catharsis, if you make quilts for, for output for families and charities and, and love and, you know, like nostalgia and use and all of this, like there's certainly nothing wrong with, with making the same block type 100 times. Uh, really, absolutely not. I think it's a really wonderful pastime. It's a really just loving gift 
Um, you know, but for people who want to take a class with the intention of pushing themselves and pushing their studio practice, they'll come to me. And my goal is to get them to see it actively, see it differently, see it with intention the whole time. Yeah. So almost helping them to take on the role of designer. Um, 100%. And making, yeah. And making those, because, you know, designing something and creating something is about problem solving. And yeah. there's just tons and tons and tons of tiny and bigger problems throughout the entire process. And so taking on that role of problem solver for themselves. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And you started, I think, with self-portraits a lot. And I wondered, um, how do you feel about self-portraits? Do you, I mean, was that just out of necessity? Like, I don't have a model? Or was there a reason, uh, you know, that self-portraits was sort of one of the first um, sort of uh, things to focus on? Yeah. I mean, you're you're 100% correct. Most people assume that it comes out of uh, vanity or narcissism or something like that. But honestly, it was building a skill set that I was too shy to share publicly. So I didn't want to ask somebody to sit for a portrait uh, to take a picture of them to use for my quilts or sit for me to take a sketch of to make a small quilt out of, you know, because I I didn't want to show anyone what I was making. It was just purely to build a skill set. And so I was the, the available model and I went to art school and you really hone your skills through recognizable imagery, right? So you do still lifes of fruits and vegetables that you can look, you can glance at a painting and you can say, okay, that flower has been rendered well, or, you know, that green bell pepper is looking a little funny. They didn't get their perspective right. You know, you can, and the, the same is very true of figures, right? I mean, that's why you do so many figure studies in art school, because you know, if you've done it wrong right away and so for me, taking portraiture and turning it into quilts is just a way of saying, okay, I know how to develop a skill set. You push yourself through recognizable imagery. I can use myself. And I just went from there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yourself is right there, you know? Yeah, exactly. exactly. <laughs> it's easy. It's an easy, the easiest subject of all. Um, yeah. And perhaps maybe the hardest one, too, at the same time. But um, And I, I noticed that you always or often spell your name in all caps. You've got a sure. great name because it's a four-letter <laughs> name. So, and you can put it in all caps. And I, I wondered if your name, if you use your name sort of like a brand in that way, where it's all caps 100%. like that. It's, I mean, it, it is branding. You, you, in the world of fine art, uh, it's about narrative. You create a narrative, narratives sell objects, narratives make interest. You write a book, it's a narrative. You create an exhibition, it's a narrative. You make a piece, you sell it to a collector, it's a narrative, it's a narrative, it's a narrative. And it's about being implicit in the process of creating objects but also it's about i mean from time well you know all the way back right the renaissance you know you see these big names in in you know Raphael, Michelangelo, like why would those particular people have these major de' Medici patrons? Why would they get the Sistine Chapel? And it's the narrative of name and it's branding and it's they they're in that case, often it was a skill set they've developed. You know, they want, you know, the 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 chapel to be painted by the best painter in the world, and that is about branding who's the best painter. And often it is a skill set that they've developed over time. And now and now our our branding has to do with um sort of bigger than life human narrative, right? Who do you, who, who do we hear about all day? Jeff Koons and Damien Hirst. Like maybe we hate them, maybe we love them, but they're the biggest egos and personas in the art world. And so they make it in every museum. And Andy Warhol is another good example of that. Why is he important? Why is he interesting? Well, he created 
a name for himself that people that was recognizable in both the image as well as the lifestyle. You know, and we see that in we see that in watch brands and in, in jean brands now. Everything is about sort of the human narrative. It's lifestyle. It's it's whatever. So uh, I'm just a part of a part of the world I live in, and I think it's really fun. I mean, for me, I really enjoy kind of go in all caps, you know, it's my artist persona. It's the difference between, you know, sitting at home eating cereal and standing out on the street corner wearing, you know, one of my bright blazers and talking about quilts, you know, it's just a, it's, it's the same me, just bigger. Mm, it's the same me, this bigger. That's good. And speaking of watches, you did, I saw like a swatch or was it? No, fossil. Swatch? It was fossil. Sorry. I saw an ad for, uh, for a watch. It was fossil watch, obviously. And, yeah. um, with you that featured you. So how did that happen? What was that like? Oh, it was so wonderful. I got to do a commission for the corporation that was the centerpiece for their 30th anniversary. So they commissioned a large 10 foot by 12 foot quilt that I made. And what, what did it show? Like, what was the quilt of? Sure. So their uh, their branding is very much about sort of uh, modern, you know, mid century modern. Um, you know, the, the modern vintage was the the tagline, and so we have this really great old Chevy truck with this couple kind of leaning over it in front of this like really square, long lined mid century modern home uh, with like a little toy rocket ship shooting off into the air. You know, but it's all out of vintage used clothing, uh, used textiles. So it's this really cool um, conversation between my work as well as their very particular branding and aesthetic. That's so cool. Well, congratulations on that. That yeah, sounds like a, neat, a really neat opportunity. Oh, it's so great. Yeah. Um, and are there other quilters that you admire and see that are sort of taking quilting to that fine art level in the way that you are. I mean, I know there's there's art quilting and there's a lot of, that's a whole segment of the quilting population are art quilters. I don't know if you identify as an art quilter or as a person who makes art through quilts or, you know, sort of where that line is. And if there are people... In- there, again, there's a, there's, yeah. a, there's a big can of worms and, you know, it's sort of tread lightly on there, but I think it's an important language you know, what, what an art quilter is, is somebody who says, listen, I want everyone to know that I'm actively making art. And again, this goes back to what I say, the distinction between craft and art is. And so often people just project craft onto quilt as a, as a method. And so people who want to make art signify that in their language. So I'm an art quilter pay attention to what I've done because I've done it actively, you know? And I feel like that's really important as the culture shifts towards a viable medium to make art. And so I think that, that, you know, I don't call myself an art quilter. You know, I'm using quilts as a medium. I'm a, I'm an architect, really. I'm just using quilts as a medium to construct the exhibitions and conversations I'm interested in. Um, so am I an art quilter? Absolutely. I make art, uh, out of quilts, but I'm, I'm a designer first. Quilts are the medium. Um, and art quilters are people who say I'm a, I'm elevating quilts to an art form. Come on, come along with me on that. And so I think that the, the language is a really interesting distinction. I think they're very different, although you, they're not slightly implicit in the object is that difference. But I don't think that necessarily we two could make different objects. We could make the same thing, but the intention being the intention being slightly different, right? Uh-huh. I mean, I am using quilts as a medium. You know, I'm coming from architecture and design and and kind of using quilting as a as a beautiful medium that has such a rich 
implicit history and textile have, you know, textiles have stories, especially used textiles or brand new textiles have stories in the, the weave, in the colors. Um, and so, you know, using it as a medium really gives me a language to speak with within an exhibition about any number of things. Um, you know, and art quilters are exactly like you said, saying, hey, we're actively taking this, taking what we're doing and we're making art out of it. Um, I want to talk a little bit about being a guy um, because, you know, there's uh, quilting is predominantly female still. Um, but you said that you feel like there's been a lot more male quilters coming on the scene and that, you know, there's YouTube now and whoever's interested can learn these skills and, um, you know, people can take a class and, and get started with the materials no matter who they are. It doesn't have to be kind of a mother to daughter sort of um, tradition that's passed on anymore. So what is it like to, what's it been like to be a, to be a man in this, uh, in this industry? Yeah, well, you get that question every time. That's for yeah, sure. exactly. I'm sure. Um, you know, it's, it's, uh, what's it like? You know, uh, I, I won't say that it, it hasn't affected me at all. You know, that would be, of course, I'm sure. I mean, I, I find that because of it, I'm, I am, able to really <laughs> sit on some good marketing. Honestly, you know, you get a lot of shows out of it. You get a lot of press out of it. It's a, it's a, you know, we as a, as a culture really like, um, outsiders and, and nuance and this kind of a thing, you know? And so as a, as a guy making quilts, people get to say, Ooh, that's really different. Uh, I mean, I don't make quilts based on the, the sort of gender dialectic. I don't, I don't really make a great deal of my work sort of explicitly as a male, um, however, I am a male, uh, you know, so I didn't, I didn't learn quilting through my family. There was a lot of quilting in my family, but, you know, I was to go play with G.I. Joes and Firecrackers, which I certainly did. Uh, but, uh, you know, there, there's quilting in the female line of my family. And it wasn't until I kind of made it up and worked on it myself later that I got to come back and say, oh, yeah, I remember, you know, there was a bunch of quilts laying around that my my great grandmother had made and this kind of a thing. Uh, so, so I think that, that one of the things being a, a kind of guy quilter, you, you have to come out of the gate guns blazing. Cause you've got a little bit more to prove. You can't just come in and say, Hey, I'm interested in trying this. You kind of get a scant glances, you know, you have to come in and say, listen, I've already done this a lot. Help me do it better. You know, you have to kind of push your way in, in some, in some ways, because it's a, it's, it's a medium based in, community experience in a lot of ways you know it's a lot about helping each other create these objects and you know the history of quilting is is really ripe with women empowerment and um you know creating sort of these jobs when women women couldn't have jobs legally and creating these communities where people could kind of spend their afternoon together working on something for the family and so there's a lot of there's a lot of woman implicit in the medium uh, historically, and I think that's important and interesting. I personally don't make work about those aspects of it, mm-hmm. however. Right. And do people make assumptions about your sexuality as well? <laughs> yes. <laughs> rather, <laughs> regularly, rather regularly. And, you know, which, which I think is an interesting, um, it's, it's an interesting line to, to navigate, you know, because on the one hand, like, you know, who cares, right? I mean, like, why would it explain me making quilts one way or the other, depending on my sexual preference? It, it oughtn't, right? It, it shouldn't necessarily. I mean, there's, you know, there's obviously a lot of projection on, on kind of the gay community that they tend towards more, I don't know, feminine work or whatever. And, and maybe that's just because they have that permission to sort of go outside of normative gender 
guidelines. Um, but I think that, that you know, those, those assumptions speak to a lot of, of, of cultural implications bigger than just, you know, who I try to date. And I think that's, and I think that's interesting, you know, like I, I don't shy away from it and, and I find, you know, gosh, I mean, how, how exciting is it that I live in a world where I have to come out as straight, you know, where I kind of have to say, Hey, you know, I'm not what you think I am. And how does that make you feel? And do you still like me? You know, these kind of things. And that's wonderful, right? How cool is it that I've had to, I mean, I had a major museum put a, one of my quilts up and within the dialogue that they wrote in the placard next to the piece specifically said that I make work as a part of sort of being, uh, as a part of my history of being a part of queer culture. And that's 100% not true. Mm-hmm. But they made it's that just assumption. Not true. And it's just figured. made that assumption. And right. how cool is that that I get to come back and to go the other way? You know, like <laughs> yeah. how empowering is it from, from a perspective sort of global understanding that they're like, oh, it's cool that you're gay. Here's just why you make it. And I get to say, guys, actually. Right. You know, I'm not, and like that's 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 a, that's a wonderful place to be, you know. That I that I kind of have to sort of fight for my place as a as a heterosexual, and I think that's really interesting. Yeah, that is interesting. Um, so uh, I know you're working on a series of log cabin quilts. You're working toward making fifty. How far along are you? Oh gosh, who even knows? It turns out fifty is a huge amount. <laughs> <laughs> really? Fifty <laughs> is a lot of quilts. Yeah. Woof. Um, yeah, I make it. I'm probably somewhere in the 20s range. Wow. Yeah, and even there is a lot. So they're all log cabins. There are different iterations. Mm-hmm. Um, and what is the goal of the, you know, the project when it's completed? The goal of the project is to, again, as we talked about, sort of me rebranding as a sculptor. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to hang 50 quilts in the center of an exhibition space. None of them are going to be on the wall. Not a single one of them is going to be this sort of like treat this like a painting, look at it as a, as a, as a visual object only. They're going to be hung in the center of the space. So you have to navigate around 50 distinct objects, front, back, sideways. And so it really creates an architectural environment uh, that you have to sort of physically navigate 50 objects and around and it creates a space and it's about the materiality and it's about um, iteration and, and, and it's, it really, it becomes, the, the scale of it is what's so important, mm. right? I can make a single quilt and I can hang it from the ceiling in the middle of a gallery and you could say, okay, here's what I get from that. But if I do it 50 times, the viewer says, okay, well, he's done it on purpose. What can I take from that? You know, what is, what does it mean? What does the multiplicity mean towards the viewer? You know, if, if you just hang a single quilt in the middle of a gallery, is it, is it novelty? Is it accidental? Is it, you know, whatever. But if you do it 50 times, you have to kind of take the artist as intentional. And then you're able to view certain things about the exhibition that you wouldn't necessarily, if it was just a single object. And so 50 becomes this kind of intentionality for me to prove to the viewers, like, Hey, here's, here's what I'm doing. These are sculptural, physical, spatial objects. And I want you as a viewer to understand that in the physical space. Mm, That's going to be fantastic and really striking. Wonderful. And I made, and I made so many of them because one of the intentions is to uh, make more than the viewers can see. Like 50 is too many to stop and look at. I mean, there just isn't. If you went to a show of 50 paintings, you wouldn't stop and look at 50. I mean, you you kind of navigate through and you find your favorites and you spend some time with it. Mm-hmm. That's yeah. what I want to do. It's about, you know, it's, yeah, it is about that kind of overwhelming scale so that viewers and, 
and, and collectors or whatever really come in and see the intentionality behind it. And they're all iterations on the log cabin, all made out of uh, reclaimed clothing, reclaimed textiles, um, red centers for the block, and then black and white fabric from there. So it's a very striking graphic. It's mm-hmm. all very, you know, from far away, they're just these very big graphic moments. Like, what does it mean to use a log cabin? What does it mean to change the scale of the blocks? What does it mean to switch the blocks? What does it mean to change the widths of each of the blocks? Like, these kind of small motions make a vast difference in the finished project. They're all seven and a half foot, 90 by 90 inches. Mm. And so you get these beautiful graphics from far away. And then up close, you get the textures of all the materials that have gone into making them. You know, you get these pinstripe pants to you know, the Harry Potter sheets to, you know, men's striped shirts to, I mean, just the whole gambit of, of material types so that as a viewer you come up and you get this, this kind of overwhelming entry point into what it's made out of. It's, it's almost a, a conversation culturally with our discarded textiles. Yeah. Have you been collecting clothing? I mean, you must be, you must have a lot to be able to. Well, I mean, I, I've, I, it, I will have used over a ton of clothing in this project. It'll wow. go over 2,000 pounds uh, easily to wow. make these 50 quilts. And I go down and I buy it by weight. So I go buy, you know, hundreds of pounds of clothing at a time and deconstruct those into the materials I use for my projects. I see. Wow. And where, where do you even buy 100 pounds? Where do you buy clothing <laughs> by weight? Is that somewhere in L.A.? Well, often big cities have a Goodwill outlet, and so that's the place that that all of the clothing has gone through the Goodwill system. Nobody's wanted it this place. Nobody's wanted it that place. And it's the last vestige before it gets bailed and sent to other countries or or shredded or whatever they do with it kind of after nobody wants it. And so you're able to drive a grocery cart through and fill it up as full as you want and buy it by the weight. Mm, Wow. That's cool. Good to know. So is that your big project coming up? Is that yeah, the, big, the next big thing? It's, yeah, huge thing. 50, I tell you what. So it's the launch, <laughs> the launch of that is in February, February 18th here in Los Angeles. I'm, I'm timing it so that it's right uh, the Thursday before QuiltCon, that same week, so that hopefully we can get a lot of quilters who are going to be in town who wouldn't otherwise uh, to come to the show. So I will have some buses from QuiltCon to ship people down to it to see the exhibition. Oh, how cool is that? That's terrific. Uh, oh, I yeah. think that's going to go over really well. <laughs> that's really neat. Um, what a neat experience. So I want to um, just talk a little bit about some of the things that you wanted to recommend um, because you've got some good ideas on your list here. So um, one person you wanted to recommend their work is Alexander McQueen, and I know you're a big fan. I am a fan. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a huge fan from, from kind of a, a bigger perspective in the sense that I really like his work, absolutely. But in addition, and, 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 and almost more so, I love what, what it means to look at him as part of his industry. I learned so much from watching. There's a big exhibition of his work in New York and then again at the v in London. Um, and you can see what it means for him to be rooted in a, in a community of, of fashion design, right? So his, his work comes from his personal skill set in making the objects, but then he has an entire team that he works with to create these lines. And once a year, only once a year, it's his job to create an amazing exhibition, you know, and that really was very freeing and learning for me. My, my goal in life is to do one amazing thing a year. Mm. Yeah, so almost using his 
career and how, as you said, his place in the industry and how he sees himself in the industry as a model for your own career. Obviously, you're doing something very different, but in some way, you know, it helps to have somebody you kind of aspire to and look yeah. to as the way, you know, how they've constructed their career. And and because really, I mean, honestly, there's no mentor here. There's no, you know, there's nobody who's, right. who's tread this path before you. And so you have to find them yourself. And this is somebody who has done that. And so you can say, okay, well, what could I do in my own uh, situation to be like that or to sure. handle things that way. Yeah. And what it's meant is I'm doing a fabric line, which means I'm honoring the community that I'm working with. You know, it's not so much I'm over here making quilts. I get to say we are all making quilts. You know, Alexander came out with jeans and t-shirts like the rest of them, you know, but he made these beautiful exhibitions and that kind of spoke to what his, his work was that then would trickle down to people actually working with and purchasing. And I find that to be really dynamic. And so I get to make a line of fabric that, that I can work with and then other people can work with. So it's a conversation industry-wide that's not so uh, small, cyclically in my studio. You know, I actually get to have a, a larger conversation now with a bigger community and sort of looking at Alexander McQueen as inspiration for that was such a good, you know, benefit to my career and my understanding of what it is to exist within an industry and within a world of, of other people doing awesome things. Yeah, that's really helpful. And I think all of us can find somebody, it won't necessarily be Alexander McQueen, but for each of us, no matter what kind of work we do, there's somebody that we could identify who's done it well and we could in some, you know, pull from their career and help to use it to shape our own. Um, Absolutely. Yeah, I think that's really helpful. Um, okay, cool. I wanted to um, throw in one of my own recommendations if I could. So um, I just launched a, a new um, trade organization with my friend Kristen Link from So Mama So. Uh, it's called Craft Industry Alliance. And we have a team of people that we have to work with. We have a graphic designer and we have an illustrator and we have um, a copy editor talking about working with a team. Plus mm-hmm. there's Kristen and I and Kristen's on the West Coast and I'm on the East Coast. So anyway, we we both also run other businesses, our own businesses. And so we have tons of email and I'm sure you do too have just tons of email. And so, um, so the fight to sort of keep our communication out of the email inbox, um, led me to Slack, which is this amazing, uh, software that I'm going to recommend to people mm-hmm. who are working with a team. Uh, so it's free. There's a paid version that gives you a couple extra features, but the free version is great. And it's basically like text messaging, um, but way better. Uh, it's um, And so there's a, a browser extension and there's also an app for your phone. And you can just go on there. You make a team adding all of your people and you can chat uh, all the time with everybody and it's searchable. Uh, you can also upload documents. So if I say, okay, here's the printable we're going to be including in the next journal issue and people can look at it uh, or you can upload photos and they all live right there, sort of like Dropbox, but it's right mm-hmm. there in your chat. Um, and it's so great. So, um, you know, you get a little notification if you have a message waiting, which is very helpful. And uh, all that communication between our team it can happen kind of like a live chat and or, you know, not necessarily live, but when people find that they have a message, they can reply and it just keeps it all out of the inbox. So if you do work remotely with somebody else, like you have a virtual assistant or you have a few other people who are working quilting for you or whatever, and mm-hmm. um, you want to keep track of everybody, but don't necessarily want to be emailing all of them and losing all their emails and all of that, uh, then Slack is a good solution. So 
Oh, great. I wanted to recommend it because it's great. Um, and I, you wanted to recommend one other thing, which are shoes, which I also would love to recommend because I love shoes. So <laughs> tell us a little bit about shoes. <laughs> Just shoes in general, huh? Just shoes in general or the shoes that you <laughs> so, love to wear. I saw yeah, a picture I mean, of you on Instagram the other day with some cool shoelaces, new shoelaces. Yeah. Well, so recently I've, I've had the pleasure of meeting a fine art cobbler. Oh. Uh, a, a, a man named Chris Francis here in Los Angeles. He did a uh, basically a residency at the museum of uh, uh, the craft and folk art museum here in LA. And so he put his entire cobbler studio in their lobby and worked out of there uh, every day they were open. And so I was able to hang out with him, and it really kind of I learned a lot about shoes, and I started paying more attention to them. And I feel like all of a sudden. I mean, shoes have a lot of the same commonalities um, as quilting. If you, take, if you take it, it's kind of rooted in function. Uh, but then, but then, so rooted in function, but then from there you go towards, you know, individuality as fast as you possibly can run. You know, you choose your high heels or you choose your sneakers or you go Velcro or you go, you know, stretchy or you go, you know, open toes or, you know, uh, you know this kind of a thing. And I just think it's so fascinating that these, these small objects are able to convey such a, well, I mean, you know, such a statement about the wearer, you know, as, as it relates to both function and aesthetic and history and, and all of these really cool, interesting components that are just implicit in the objects themselves. Yeah. And shoes are, you know, they're, uh, there's a craft behind making them and they're functional. So, um, you know, in some ways I do see that similarity. Plus, um, you know, your shoe size tends to stay the same, even if, um, you know, so they always fit, which is kind of nice. It's like buying a handbag, you know, yeah, yeah. they always fit. It's always a good pick me up. So, yeah. Um, well, uh, Luke, it's been really great talking to you. Thank you so much for taking oh, the time course. to be yeah, on the Walsh and podcast. Certainly. Yeah. And where can people connect with you best online if they want to kind of send you a message or find out more? Sure. Well, the two, the two ways that I'm the, the most uh, present with would be Instagram, uh, which is at entropies, E-N-T-R-O-P-I-E-S, or just at my website, which is just lukehaines.com, H-A-Y-N-E-S. And then there's a contact page on there. If there's any questions, feel free to send me an email. Okay, great. And you've been listening to the Walshy Naps podcast. Visit my blog, walshynaps.com, where you can sign up for my weekly email newsletter. And if you enjoyed the show, tell a friend about it. Thank you so much, and I'll see you next time.